This is Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kettler. And this is episode 35 in our series for 2014. And today's date is Friday, the 12th of September. And Leon, what have we got on the schedule for this week? Well, Gary, we have a terrific interview with a guy called Draw Nadler. He's the Vice President Sales Strategic Alliances of the multi-persona platform Cellrox. Now, Cellrox is actually an Israeli company, but it operates in the US. And it's a platform that allows people to have multiple personas on their mobile device. So work and personal. And he's going to be talking to us all about the issue with data management for big companies and the problems with the BYOD movement. Yeah, I thought he was really interesting that, you know, it's okay to have your own devices and people demand it, but it's got to be done in a disciplined way. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's now talk to Draw Nadler. Draw Nadler, Cellrox, uh, you have concerns about uh, the BYD movement and uh, security. Well, first of all, uh, thank you for having me um, on your podcast. Uh, I believe that uh, concerns around BYOD uh, is not something that's unique to, uh, to uh, personally to me or to Cellrox. I think this is something that many organizations are struggling these days. Uh, the fact of the matter is bring uh, your own devices is, is absolutely a challenge to any IT organizations. I think more specifically, though, the concern is really around how are you able to, to provide this, this type of balance between making sure that the employees that essentially own the device have the ability to maintain their, maintain their privacy and essentially use the device the way they, they really would like to, uh, and at the same time making sure that the organization have the ability to protect their assets. How does an organization do that? Well, you know, fair enough. There, there are obviously many solutions, you know, out in the market. Uh, what we actually bring to the table is Cellrox. It's just a little bit about Cellrox, really. Cellrox has, has a, a mobile OS virtualization platform. So really, when you think about it, we have the ability to run multiple OS instances on the same physical device. So, so you may ask yourself why that matters. It matters because we are essentially, by, by creating this virtualization, uh, able to, to create this level of separation, which is a complete separation between what we call a persona, which is essentially an OS instance, one and the other. So you can essentially have a work persona on your physical device, and you can have a personal persona on the physical device. And each one of these personas believe it's in its own user space and essentially cannot interfere with one and the other, uh, both from a, from a data perspective um, and, and, and ultimately application. And, and, and more specifically, when you think about uh, any user for that matter that may download a game or unintentionally a malicious app from any application store, right? Uh, in, a, in a regular phone, a regular phone environment, you are essentially have that malicious application coexist, co-located with the user space, that same user space, which is a single user space, where there are, there are, are applications that are essentially uh, work-related application and work-related data. And, and the challenge there is that that malicious application can either gain control, it doesn't need to ha even have 
root access control, but it can gain control over the data and essentially have, uh, that's where it may result in a data breach. In our solution, you have this element of separation. So even though you do, you may unintentionally download a malicious app as a user, because it resides on your personal persona, it wouldn't interfere and it wouldn't have the ability to gain access or any visibility whatsoever to the data related to the, to the work-related data, which is ultimately sensitive and, and, and something that organizations are ultimately trying to protect. That's fascinating technology, and it sounds so obvious. Uh, so it's quite innovative. Uh, how, did you, how did you arrive at that? Well, uh, ultimately, that is something that uh, our co-founder and CTO, uh, Dr. Oren Laadan, uh, that was essentially... Uh, his uh, main work uh, throughout his uh, PhD work at uh, Columbia University. Um, and, and essentially, uh, virtualization, you know, been around for quite some time now. But I, I think the uniqueness around our solution is essentially what is the best virtualization technology when it comes to mobile devices, right? And how to do it best uh, in, in an environment which is limited by resources, by design, unlike servers. Uh, workstations, what have you, where you can just upgrade memory um, and 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 beef up the the uh, you know essentially the capability of the uh, of the server. In mobile devices, you essentially getting a given uh, set of of resources uh, that you cannot just upgrade, and therefore you need to provide this element of virtualization, right? But at the same time, making sure that it doesn't really have any performance degradation, and it allows the user to maintain this type of capabilities and user experience that they are expecting. You would need, say with a tablet, with an iPad or something like that, how do you separate, how do you protect the, the server or the VPN that, that many of them work to? You know, that, that's an excellent question. So, so first of all, you know, think about, you know, either a tablet or, uh, or basically a mobile device. The technology, uh, we're actually calling it a thin visor because it, it's a very small footprint. It's not as, it's not like a hypervisor, right? It's, it's really a thin visor. Uh, it's really what we call an OS virtualization. I mean, not only us, that's kind of known uh, in the, the service space as OS virtualization. And really what we do, we're sitting in the kernel and right underneath the operating system. Uh, so essentially that's where we sit. And then on top of it, um, you essentially able to to uh, to install multiple operating systems instances, and because we're sitting right there at the kernel level, you also have the ability to customize these operating systems. Customizing in in a sense that will reduce risk. Uh, so I'll give you an, a very quick example. Uh, when you think about uh, an Android operating system in the in the vanilla version that you're getting. Uh, there is an option to download application from unknown source. Now, granted, that is a risk. Uh, and that is a risk that, that frankly, some users may, may be willing to take. From an organization standpoint, that obviously is a huge concern if there is indeed uh, data that resides on that device. Uh, so we have the ability to customize uh, one of these OS, OS instances, call it a work persona or a business persona, in a way that that menu item is grayed out. And it just doesn't allow you to download uh, this application from unknown source, just as an example. So, so essentially, that's where we reside. And that's how we are able to, to create this element of separation uh, between each one of these instances. So in a, in a, in a sort of a, a practical sense, this would be, 
more or less the same style of thing as, say, partitioning a hard drive or something like that uh, to make it totally separate, you know, totally separate partitions. Yeah, well, I, I, I do like the analogy. I, I think it's even stronger than that, right? Because it's, uh, just to clarify, it's not like profiling. It's not just having different user profiles on the same system. Um, it's essentially have a complete separation to the point that you actually have each one of these personas sits within their own user space. And, and the, the reason why I'm emphasizing it is that, uh, you know, f- for those of us who have some, uh, some, some obviously experience with Linux system, as an example, when you gain root access in a given user space, you can pretty much do whatever you want within that user space, no matter how protected the other application that reside within that user space has. Uh, but granted, get, getting root access or getting some sort of uh, a superior permission in a given user space doesn't really give you anything in other user spaces, uh, for that matter. Uh, so this element of separation is greater than uh, it, it is more of a, a partition, I guess, of a hard drive where you you're pretty much at the root level and you cannot really jump you cannot really jump to the uh, to the other. Uh, essentially partitioned the way you described it. Yeah. So now take the human side. What sort of training would the user re- need? Um, you know, he might be playing a game on on the train going to work. Uh, he doesn't switch across to the virtual, the the other virtual side. Uh, he maybe is vulnerable there. You're t- the two are totally um, insulated from one another, I gather. Uh, but is there any need for human training in the use of this uh, software? Yeah, no, uh, that, that's absolutely ab- absolutely a fair question. So, from from a usability standpoint, we made it uh, to the point that it's it's truly transparent, right? So, from a user experience standpoint, you should expect the same experience as you would have in a in what we call a single uh, type of persona, which is essentially the typical uh, phone that that or tablet that you have, right? Um, so the, from user experience, uh, it, it's pretty much the same. Switching from one to the other, uh, it's something that you can pretty much do at the launcher, uh, just kind of sliding, sliding your finger from one end to the other or the, uh, at the top uh, of the screen. So it's, it's pretty convenient. But I do have to say, and, and it's absolutely true, uh, you know, training, uh, there is absolutely a need for a training, but the need for training is not as much as using the multi-persona uh, type of device. I mean, it, it's pretty straightforward, uh, you know. Quite frankly, and 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 um, and we intentionally made it that way. But the training has to do with the ability of the users to realize, and this is a continuous type of effort, to be honest. It really to realize how you differentiate the level of protection according to the value placed on the information, right? And and by doing so, uh, you could. You know, think about, imagine a situation where even outside of work, you have your, uh, all of your uh, sensitive financial information that may reside in a specific application. Maybe your bank has an app that you're using or, 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 and, and, and some other elements. And how you put all of that information in a, either like electronic wallet persona or some sort of a financial persona. And, and it's a hardened a type of OS instance, persona rather, that nothing else gets on it. And, and, and essentially knowing, you know, what you're dealing with, oh my God, I'm right now working on my wallet persona, therefore I probably should not download Angry Birds for Thanksgiving, uh, and so forth. That would suggest it's not so much the 
user gets training. It's not so much, that's not the issue, but the issue is that the organization has to take it on themselves to train the users how to use it. Frankly, the organizations, what they need to do, organizations are looking for control, but I think the challenge that the organization have with bring your own device is, you know, getting control, but then to what extent and how we do it without, you know, essentially jeopardizing the elements of privacy that the users have. From an organization standpoint, because we are giving them the ability to customize the OS instance, right, they are essentially able to to uh, to create an OS instance that in a way uh, won't expose them to this type of risk. Uh, so, for example, they can make sure, they can ensure uh, that what application residing on that work persona, uh, they can ensure that. And they can also ensure what type of menu items needs to be disabled to prevent this type of uh, user errors per se. So from a, an organization's viewpoint, uh, they would hire cell rocks. You'd go in and install on their servers or on their network, or how does that work? And then how does how does that uh, set up get transmitted to a tablet or a phone or or a notebook? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, thank you for asking that question. So so I guess there there are kind of few elements here. So first of all, what we already doing right now. Uh, you know, Cellworks being a startup company, we already started to work with um, uh, quite a bunch of OEMs, right, to make sure that our technology uh, residing uh, essentially embedded in their devices before they shipping it out the door, right? So we, we have this, this effort kind of going on, and, and granted, that is, that is an effort that, that takes time and, and, and takes some, uh, some, some work, and we're making uh, quite substantial progress there. Um, there is also the element of uh, when you already have a device that already uh, left uh, left the manufacturer without the Cellrox technology on it, uh, what we're planning on doing is to do what we call a post-market installation. And, and at that point, essentially, we would uh, put the technology uh, on the device. And once the technology is on the device... And that installation process, you know, to be fair, it's not what I would say, what I would call a customer installable. I mean, it does require a certain skill set. I mean, it's not rocket science, but it does require IT professional to get involved. And then once that multi-persona layer, that thin visor layer, layer that I mentioned earlier, once that is embedded in the phone and activated, from an IT perspective, we are providing them essentially uh, an element of management called CPM, which stands for Cellworks Persona Manager, uh, that can either live side-by-side with their MDM solution of choice. I haven't mentioned it, but we are complementary to MDM. We are not seeing ourselves as a competitive to MDM. This is really not our bread and butter, uh, so to speak. Uh, our bread and butter is really creating, you know, having this virtualization platform residing on the on the actual device. Uh, so that Cellworks Persona Manager is really essentially giving them the ability to manage that uh, thin visor and more specifically the work persona. And the organization won't have the ability to manage the personal persona by design. Uh, We don't want them to manage that. And frankly, they don't want to manage that because that's going to make them liable uh, to the information, the personal information that may reside on the device. Claude Nadler, thank you very much for your time. Thank you both. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think pretty well every every businessman, even small to medium businesses, ought to listen, ought to hear, draw, because uh, there's some very good advice in there. I think so. I think so. And now let's have a chat with economist Saul Eslake, and he's going to be talking to us all about 
the impact of the mining industry decline in Australia and what impact that will have on the economy. Yeah, and it's getting a bit worse too, I think, isn't it? That's right. So it's like GDP is up around 3.1%, but unemployment is rising. What's the disconnect here? Well, that's certainly a puzzle because the definition of trend growth traditionally has been growth that's at a sufficient pace to stop the unemployment rate from rising. And in recent years, most people have reckoned that that rate is about 3%. When the Reserve Bank has said over the past few years that it expected growth to return to a trend pace, it's been talking about 3%. Yet we've had that over the past year, and the unemployment rate's now at a seven-year high of 6.4%. The reason for this apparent puzzle, in my view, is that real GDP growth is no longer telling us as much about what's happening to domestic income and employment growth as it used to. And that's because as a result of the resources boom and its aftermath, the relationship between GDP on the one hand, which is a measure of the volume of production, and measures of income, which in turn help to drive employment, has changed materially. In particular, as we've seen in different directions over the last 10 years, fluctuations in what economists call the terms of trade, the ratio of the prices we get for our exports to the prices we pay for our imports, have a very big impact on the relationship between what we produce and the income we earn for producing it. For much of the 10 years between 2002 and 2012, when the terms of trade were improving, that is, when commodity prices were going up, in some cases spectacularly, the income we got for every unit of output measured by GDP was accelerating. But the terms of trade peaked in mid-2011. Commodity prices on average are down by about 40% from that peak. And that means that we're now getting a subtraction from our income growth from increased production, particularly of exportable commodities. And the way that economists capture that in the national accounts is by looking at growth in what we call real gross domestic income, which in contrast to the growth rate of GDP has grown by only 1.3% over the past four quarters. The difference of almost two percentage points represents the loss of income arising from the fact that Australia's terms of trade have declined over the last year. That has a tangible impact on revenue collected by government because income from commodity prices usually accrues in the first instance since the companies who pay tax at an average rate of 30%. That's higher than the average rate of tax paid on personal income. And hence, there's a big impact from changes in the terms of trade to government revenue. But that also filters through to households and determines how much they can spend, which is in turn a big driver of employment. So does that mean people are now earning less than they did during the boom? People as a whole and business as a whole are actually earning less for every dollar for every unit of output that they produce which is picked up in GDP than was the case and that's unwinding the very positive impact that the rising terms of trade had both on government revenues and on business and personal incomes while the terms of trade were rising as they did for most of the period between 2002 and 2011 2012 when was it last like this 
Well, they, there was a brief period during the financial crisis when our terms of trade temporarily fell sharply. And of course, as we know, that had a significant negative impact on government revenue. And in fact, measured by real gross domestic income as opposed to real gross domestic product, Australia did actually have a recession during the financial crisis. The other and more prolonged period when we were experiencing income losses associated with a falling terms of trade was, of course, during the 1980s when, at the height of this, Paul Keating famously said that if that trend continued, we'd end up being a banana republic. So it goes right back to those days. It goes back to those days. Indeed, you could argue from a longer-term historical perspective that Australia's terms of trade had been deteriorating erratically from the early 1950s through to the late 1980s when Paul Keating made that now famous expression, except for a brief period during the Poseidon boom of the mid-1970s. The fall in Australia's terms of trade over much of the second half of the 20th century was one of the key reasons why Australia slipped down the international ladder of countries ranked by relative living standards from close to top in the period immediately after the Second World War to, by 1990, only ranking about 20th. A good deal of the improvement that has occurred since then has been driven by improvements in the terms of trade, as well as the fruits of economic reforms that have been pursued during that era. Uh, What we're now potentially seeing is Australia's relative standard of living, which is very high at the moment, starting to slip as a result both of falling terms of trade, slower economic growth here within Australia, and some would say the lack of any serious economic reform over the last 15 years. Well, if our standards of living are slipping, that goes to all the debate that's now happening about the budget, doesn't it? It does, and it goes beyond that to the debate that some are trying to have about the need for more wide-ranging economic reforms than simply to the state of the budget, but to our product and labour markets beside. There was a very powerful but not very widely read warning in this year's budget papers in statement number four, which is where Treasury sets out, independently of political interference, its views about some longer-run factors affecting the economy. And the point that the Treasury made there was that on the basis of plausible assumptions about population growth, labour force participation, the terms of trade and the extent to which Australian income would be paid to foreign shareholders who own 80% of the resources sector on average, growth in real per capita national income over the decade ahead could be just 0.9% per annum, which would be the slowest for any decade since the end of the Second World War, lower even than in the 1970s. Or alternatively, this statement in the budget paper showed, in order to sustain the rate of growth of per capita real national income that we've had for the last 20 years of about two and a quarter percent per annum, we would need to lift productivity growth to almost three percent per annum over the next decade. And that's something that, as Treasury points out in this statement, Australia has never done for a period as long as a decade. Well, that raises a whole lot of political issues, doesn't it? Well, it does, because reforms of the sort that would be required to allow us to achieve this sort of productivity growth over a decade-long period 
are always challenging. They do require people and businesses to give up some of the privileges that they've come to enjoy over the last 15 or so years and to do things differently from the way that many of them have done them over the last 15 years. And we are partly as a result of the prosperity we've enjoyed over the last 20 years without a recession and with generally rising standards of living, not in a frame of mind where we will willingly contemplate reforms that create losers as well as winners. Would this trend take us closer to a recession? Not necessarily. Uh, I've said before, and I stand by the assertion, that there's perhaps a 20 to 25% chance that Australia could experience a recession at some point over the next two years when the investment phase of the mining boom really starts to wind down. And for that chance to be realised, I think there would have to be some specific shock, such as a hard landing in China or a property bust here in Australia, to bring that on. But I guess what I'm saying is that there's therefore a 75 to 80% chance that we'll continue to meander along at the sort of rates we've been experiencing in the last two years, where GDP growth might look close to trend, but income growth is noticeably lower than that. Employment growth isn't enough to absorb all of the new entrants to the labour force, and hence the unemployment rate continues to drift up. What that means, though, what that means, though, is... That to get out of this, we actually need to have some productivity improvements. I think we do in a sustainable way. I mean, we'll probably get some benefit, in my view, late next year and into 2016, if, as I expect, the Australian dollar finally falls to levels that are more consistent with where commodity prices and Australian interest rates are. Uh, but even that will take time to flow through because businesses will want to be assured that if the currency does fall, as I expect, next year, it actually stays down rather than turns around. And then, of course, in order to take advantage of the competitive opportunities that might be opened by a lower exchange rate, we'll need to have, as we've been discussing here, reasonable grounds to expect that productivity performance will be much stronger than it's been for most of the last 14 years. And that will be a very hard call for governments? It will be a hard call not only for governments, but for the business community and households. Saul like thank you very much. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Well, what do you think, Leon? It's pretty grim. Yeah, it, it really is. And I think we need to buckle up a bit. But, um, you know, I think Saul was indicating we've got about 12, at least 12 months of pretty hard times coming. Absolutely. With the iron ore price heading the way it is, as we talked about. Now, uh, uh, to the news around the world. And uh, first of all, uh, IMF Managing Director Christine Lagarde is saying the world economy is likely to grow this year at a slower pace than expected because of all the geopolitical crises going on in the Ukraine and the Middle East. And she said that in an interview with the French newspaper Les Echos. And the fund's team of economists is currently updating its forecast to a small 3% this year and between maybe up to 3.5%. And she says growth is fragile because of all these geopolitical risks, because of what's happening in the Ukraine and its impact on Germany and other neighbouring countries, as well as the rising tension in several areas in the Middle East. So that's a bit of a worry, Gary. It is indeed. And at the moment, as far as I can see, there's no real likelihood of a resolution. No, no, no. But uh, there's good news coming out of the US, Gary. The number of US job openings have remained to their highest level, would you believe, in 13 years. Yeah, it's amazing. And companies also stepped up, stepped up hiring that 
to the fast, fast pace in nearly seven years. And the Labor Department says the available jobs ticked down 2,000 to 4.67 million in July. Total hiring jumped 81,000 to 4.87 million, the highest level since December 2007 when the recession began. It sounds promising. Yeah, it does. And I have to say that where I am, of course, this is Silicon Valley, but uh, they got their tails up here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and of course, um, but the, the problem is that the Japanese economy contracted in the second quarter at their fastest pace since 2009, uh, dealing a blow to Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's efforts to re-energize the economy with pro-growth steps. And revised data showed that the country's gross domestic product contracted at an annualized 7.1% in April to June. That's quite uh, severe because uh, businesses are retrenching and uh, the government is raising sales tax there. Yeah, and of course, Japan is still a big customer of Australia. That's right. And another big customer of Australia, China, their monthly trade surplus rose to US $49.8 billion in August. That's the highest amount on record. And that's exports increased 9.4% year on year, and imports decreased 2.4%. And Chinese Premier Li Qixiang said China is on course to hit its annual growth target of 7.5% this year, Gary. Yeah, well, which also, in a sense, I mean, I know a lot of that is domestic uh, improvement, but it still indicates that things aren't too bad in other parts of the world where China sells its goods. No, no, but oil prices have dropped with the European benchmark contracts slipping below US $100 a barrel, and uh, European benchmark crude oil uh, for October declined at $0.62 cents to $100 and $20 a barrel. And that's after early falling below $100 a barrel for the first time since June 2013. So watch those oil prices, Gary. Yeah, there's, there's bags of oil around. That's part of the problem. But like um, now our iron ore in China. That's right. Now, uh, to Australia and uh, business confidence is still resilient despite dropping slightly in August, according to the National Australia Bank Monthly Business Survey. And uh, the survey attributed the slight fall in confidence, which is down two points on July to a read of eight points, to a surprising jump in the previous survey and a sharp drop in profit and sales that we talked about last week, Gary. Yeah, true. And uh, business conditions halved to four points. That's down from eight in the previous month. Uh, but also concerns about the federal budget are back and weighing on consumer confidence. The Westpac Melbourne Institute Index of Consumer Sentiment fell by 4.5% in September to 94 points. Now, the index has actually stayed below 100 points for the last six months, Gary, and that means there are more pessimists about the economy than there are optimists. Yeah, I don't think that's going to change much as uh, we start to, the automotive companies start to uh, shed jobs in, in Victoria. No, but at the same time, rising job ad numbers suggest the labour market's improving. Uh, despite the shock jump in July's unemployment rate, job ads, according to the ANZ's monthly job ads report, rose 1.5% in August and were up 8% over the year to date. And as I said, uh, that, that's a bit of a surprise because unemployment the other week hit a 12-year high of 6.4%. Yeah, I think part of the problem is that the the sorts of people these companies are looking for don't don't are not available. No, no, no. And uh, meanwhile, demand for home loans rose in July, but much less than expected, as loans for owner occupied homes slipped in the month. According to the ABS, the number of home loans granted in July rose zero point three percent. That's not much. And former Howard government minister Peter Reith is calling for significant economic reforms to be made before what he says the inevitable recession hits Australia. Well, thank you for that. 
Now, Reith served in Cabinet from 1962 to 2001, and of course what he's pushing for is industrial relations reform as well as changes to tax laws that help wealthy, older, older Australians. Bless him for the thought. He, he's going to run full into the union movement. That's right. That's right. Now, uh, Foreign Minister Julie Bishop has welcomed a Chinese counterpart to Sydney, saying Australia and China are on track to sign a free trade agreement this year to strengthen the relationship. And Foreign Minister Wang Yi is here in Australia for the second annual Australia-China Foreign and Strategic Dialogue, which comes ahead of Chinese President Xi Jinping's visit to Brisbane for the G20 summit in November. Now, trade talks between Australia and China began in 2005. They stalled last year because of agriculture and China's insistent on removing investment limits for state-owned enterprises. And, but it's interesting because over the past year, Australia's sealed free trade deals with Japan and South Korea. Yeah, that's right. But I mean, particularly the Japanese one is very long term. I think some of it doesn't come in for the next 15 years. Well, Australia signed a submarine deal with Japan. I don't know what that's going to do for our relationship with China, Gary. No, not a lot. <laughs> no, and um, <laughs> Mr Wang acknowledged that China might not be Australia's closest friend at the moment, but he says, we can sure be your most sincere friend. Now, iron ore is actually trading at $83.20 a tonne. That's down half a percent. And the current price represents its lowest level since September 2009 on the back of falls in the order of 40% this year. And the commodity has barely paused for dressed in a remarkable treat over the past two and a half weeks. And it's starting to claim victims. A one exporter bound for administration and $250 million takeover bill under increasing doubt. Um, the price for Australia's most lucrative export has been below $100 a ton for 15 weeks. And it's now close to break-even level for several smaller, medium-sized Australian exporters. And it became too much for Pokey King, Bruce Matheson, Western Desert Resources, which was forced to appoint Cord Mentor as voluntary administrators. And Western Desert has been trying to renegotiate funding arrangements with Macquarie for its Roper Bar export operations in Northern Territory, but was told that no support would be forthcoming. And uh, Western Desert said the low iron ore price was one of the reasons for its failure. And that's going to hurt the engineering group, Tears, which was contracted to work as a company's mining contractor until January 2017. Yeah, well, it can't go on. I think the cost of production is is above the price they're getting from China. And the sliding price could also cause trouble for media mogul Kerry Stokes. His ASX-listed iron ore vehicle, Iron Ore Holdings, is subject to a takeover from BC Iron. And under the terms of the acquisition bid, the deal can be terminated if the iron ore price falls below $90 a tonne for 20 consecutive days. And so guess where it's been? Yeah, well below. And uh, McGrath Nickel partner Sean Fraser is predicting the country's big banks could soon see a spike in problem loans because of the low commodity prices. So this could be the beginning of a whole lot of business failures coming up, Gary. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that's true. Now, of course, the big news coming out of the UK is about what the hell is going to happen to Scotland <laughs> and uh, rising momentum for Scotland to secede is expected to put pressure on the NAB's shares with a yes vote, potentially pushing, pushing bad debt charges higher and closing the door on the sale of its British operations. And a poll last week found the pro-independence were ahead for the first time this year. And Credit Suisse has told 
clients at the heightened uncertainty points to downside share price, share price risks. And in the third quarter trading update last month, NAB Chief Andrew Thorben noted the potential blow to the bank's British subsidiary, Clydesdale Bank, if the secession vote succeeds. Now, Clydesdale was founded in 1838 in Glasgow, bought by the NAB in 1987. It has around 300 branches in the north of England and Scotland, with areas in lower economic growth since the global financial crisis. And... The pressure is on the NAB to sell the bank after years of pain for shareholders, but analysts believe Scotland's looming vote, along with uncertainty about future changes for poor performance, make any sale impossible until next year. Well, I think that's true. I mean, one of the consequences of secession will be that Scotland will uh, be pushed out of the European Union, so they're going to lose market. That's right. And the British pound has remained under pressure, uh, touching a fresh 10-month low against the dollar, as investors are keeping a nervous eye on next week's vote on Scottish independence. And uh, uh, big companies like uh, BP and uh, Standard Life are warning that they're going to pull out of Scotland. Yeah, well, I think they might just do that. It's not a good outlook. No, so all eyes are on what happens over there. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. And we'll be back next week with um, who have we got. Uh, we've got a terrific interview with uh, Jürgen Michaelis. He's the chief executive of uh, BioSA. Very interesting company. It's government-backed in uh, Adelaide and is building a biosciences centre in Adelaide. And uh, it's, uh, I think, going to be one of the things that you've got innovation and you've got uh, high performance and talent in there. And I think that's what they need. And it's a bit of the doldrums over there. Well, it'll be fascinating to watch. And, and that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, so we'll be back next week. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBiz, B-R-Z-Z, or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe and we'll be back next week.